0: Hey everybody, Lindsay Hine here and we are doing some rerun episodes over this holiday break and I'm really excited this week to share an episode, to replay an episode which is number 42 with David Thomas, who is the director of family counseling at Daystar Counseling in Nashville, Tennessee. This episode is all about raising boys. And so I really hope you all enjoy it. I'm going to play the whole episode with the intro as well. So you'll learn a little bit more about him in the intro, but thank you for being here. If you're new here, perhaps you haven't heard this episode yet and it'll be fresh for you. Um, And if you have listened, it might be a good refresher. A good re listen. So enjoy your holidays, and we will see you with fresh episodes in January. This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey everybody welcome to why is everyone yelling with Lindsay Hine I'm your host Lindsay and I'm so grateful you are joining me today this is a podcast for parents or anybody helping raise kids and I hope you take a little something from each episode that can help you in your everyday life I am excited about today's episode this is episode 42 and I'm talking with David Thomas David is the Director of Family Counseling at Daystar Counseling in Nashville, Tennessee. He's the co-author of eight books, including The Best Selling Wild Things, The Art of Nurturing Boys, and Are My Kids On Track? The 12 Emotional, Social, and Spiritual Milestones Your Child Needs to Reach. He is a frequent guest on national television and podcasts, including his own called Raising Boys and Girls, and has been featured in publications like The Washington Post and USA Today, he also speaks across the country he has two sons who are twins and a daughter and in this episode we focus specifically on raising boys i am the mom of four boys myself so this topic is extra intriguing to me i knew when i started this podcast i wasn't going to solely focus on raising boys or anything like that but i also knew i was very interested in conversations like this so i'm excited to bring this conversation to you today. David is a licensed therapist and he works with kids and parents on all kinds of different topics. And you know, I think as the mom of four boys, he has helped me understand them a little bit better. And one of my biggest struggles with my kids, which we talk about in this episode, is just the really rough physical play that happens all the time and david has helped me really understand that a little bit more and also given me some tools and ideas for how to manage it well manage myself in these moments so anyway i hope you really enjoy this conversation and i hope that you get something out of it before we get started talking with david i do want to thank Prevenex for supporting this podcast previnex is a great place to get multivitamins and supplements And they have amazing vitamins for kids that are clinically effective and promote longevity, performance, and everyday health. Now, the really cool thing about their kids' vitamins is that for every bottle you purchase, they donate a bottle to malnourished kids around the world. Supervites deliver the right forms and optimal amounts of key nutrients to support your growing child for their eye health, bone support, immune health, increased energy, and improved focus. They've donated over 1 million bottles of supervites And I'm telling you, my kids love them. My youngest, Sandy, who is almost three, begs for them every day. So I always feel really good about getting Super Bites into their body because their diet is not always super balanced every single day. It just doesn't happen. So I feel really good about getting these vitamins into their body. Uh, my family also uses the protein powder, which we really like in smoothies. You can check out Prevanex when you go to prevanex.com. Use the code Lindsay fifteen for fifteen percent off your order. That's Lindsay L I N D S E Y one five, and you'll get fifteen percent off your order. And when you support sponsors of the podcast, you're directly supporting this show. So I thank you greatly for that. I really do. All right, enjoy my conversation with David Thomas. All right. Well, today on Why Is Everyone Yelling? We have David Thomas on the show. Welcome to the show, David.
1: Thanks for having me. Honored to be here.
0: I'm honored to have you on the show. And I want to give everyone just a little bit of background on your story, who you are, what you do for a profession. So can you share with us a little bit about Daystar and what you do for work?
1: I'd love to. I have been a therapist practicing at this amazing place called Daystar Counseling here in Nashville, Tennessee for the past 25 years. And the whole focus for us in our practice is with the pediatric population. So we serve just children, adolescents and families and have loved doing that work. I get to do that work with an amazing team of folks. We do the work a little differently in that we're in a house rather than an office complex. And we, it was a very intentional decision for us because if you've ever taken a kid you love to counseling or gone yourself, you know that it can feel overwhelming in that first experience. So we try to do as much as we can to make it as disarming and feel as safe and comfortable as possible. So we chose that space very intentionally. We also have five therapy dogs on staff, which are pretty much all the kids' favorite therapists. We're all aware we're in line behind them. <laughs> <laughs> but is a, a snapshot of, I think, how we do the work differently, kind of who we are and how important that is to us so that, again, kids can just feel as safe as possible talking about whatever it is they're navigating in life. So I love the work. I've been so grateful to be there for decades now. And in addition to the kids I have the privilege of of working with, I have three of my own. My oldest is a girl. And then about a year into her life, we got a whopper of a surprise. We found out we were pregnant. We were incredibly grateful to be pregnant again. We went for our ultrasound midway through the pregnancy and walked in the door and said to the technician, okay, we're really old school. We don't want to know what we're having. We'd love to be surprised. Make a note in your chart, but don't tell us. And I can still remember where I was standing in that room on that day when she looked up with this huge smile as she was scanning my wife's belly and said, I see two heads. (laughs) Yeah. And I remember thinking, why in the world are you smiling if the baby has two heads? Like (laughs) nothing nothing about that sounds right to me. (laughs) We were genuinely that shocked. We have no history of multiples in our family. My wife had not gained extra weight or counts weren't different. None of those indicators that you get when you're carrying multiples were there for us. So here we are halfway through the pregnancy finding this out. And then as you know, with multiples, they almost always come early. So we are like, okay, great. We have this tiny window before this enormous surprise is going to arrive. So I said, tell us what we're having.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, go ahead. We're so behind at this point. And she said, two boys.
0: And how old are those boys now?
1: Those boys just turned 19. They're getting ready to head to college. So it's like okay. we're still recovering from that news 19 years later. <laughs> like, jolting news, as you know of as being a mom of multiple boys. Like it's just it means something different. Which yeah. is what I'm excited to get to talk with you about today. Like it just means something different. And I had done enough work for that long a period of time at that point with boys to know what that meant, to understand all of what that was going to mean for us in our journey, particularly the fact that we were going to have two at the exact same moment of development all throughout. So we are, we are still in that journey today. All joking aside, though, I, I've loved it. I've loved parenting boys. I mean, I love parenting my daughters. Well, I'm just grateful. And I think, you know, our, our journey of parenting is where I think we learn some of the best stuff about ourselves, I think, about relationships, uh, about God, about all aspects of life. I think it's where I have done more learning than in the context of any other relationship in my life. So I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for it.
0: Did your practice shift at all to focusing on boys once you had your boys and like when you wrote your book, Wild Things, like did that shift once you were like, oh, I'm doing this times two all at once?
1: You know, my focus had always been primarily on work with boys okay. and adolescent males and their families. I will say I started getting more and more referrals for parents of multiples uh-huh. and I and That enhanced my co-author and good friend, Stephen James, who I wrote Wild Things with, is also a parent of boys. He has four kids. His oldest is a girl, had a second boy, and then he and his wife got pregnant with twin boys. So if you're a parent of twins, that book is full of stories about multiples. But between the three of us, we had five boys. And so there were, there were a lot of stories, obviously, just from our own experience. But thousands of stories from the experiences I've had in my work of just sitting front row with boys and young men of all ages. And, and again, really learning from being in the same room with them. And that I think as grateful as I am for all of my training in undergrad and graduate school, I think the best stuff I know is from decades of experience of just sitting with families, sitting with boys and their families and, and learning in that space. So I'm really grateful for it.
0: You know, just quick side note, my episode I'm recording tomorrow is with parents of grown kids that have two sets of twins, 14 months apart. And their daughter actually reached out to me. She's been on my, I have a podcast about running as well, because I'm a runner. And she said, you should really interview my parents. They just did such an amazing job and like two sets of twins, 14 months apart. So as you're talking about this, I'm like, oh, this is going to be so fun to talk to them tomorrow.
1: Oh, I can't wait to listen to that episode.
0: Yeah, it's going to be fun.
1: And it's fun fascinating how many parents of multiples go on to have a second set. I mean, the stats are really high. You jump into a a high bracket of that possibility. And I remember learning that fact and saying to my wife, we're done. Like, we're (laughs) done having kids.
0: (laughs) You'd have five. Yeah, I mean, I always feel like my four kids, my oldest was six when I had my fourth, and I always felt like that was pretty close together, but having four within 14 months, I'm like, I can't even imagine. We can start with this, though, since you have a daughter and two boys, and then um, your co-author of your book, Wild Things, also sounds like he has boys and girls. My husband and I often look at each other and we're like, how would this dynamic change if there was just one girl in the mix? You know, if our number three was a girl, our number three, who tends to be our wildest of them all, like what if he was a girl? Would, would the dynamic change? So I'm curious of your years of counseling and work and your own personal experience, does that make a difference in the physicality and craziness and wildness of having multiple boys?
1: I think it absolutely does, and and you know, the the research around you know co-educational learning environments versus same gendered environments, all boys, all girls schools, is fascinating. That I think speaks to a lot of that reality of how different it makes any environment, whether it's a learning environment, a home environment, when we put both genders in the same space versus just one, and it's not to say as we talk around this concept that only good things happen in one scenario and only hard things happen in another but your question is a great question it does simply change the dynamic and obviously temperament is going to impact that birth order is going to impact that in fact you know my co-author and I scenario that we both had firstborn girls i think there's so much to be said for firstborn girls and that's not to say that every girl who is a firstborn fits squarely within our understanding of the firstborn firstborn profile, but it is to say a lot do. And a high percentage of those girls are, generally speaking, more rule followers. They're conscientious. They're intuitive. They're a bit more compliant. Like there are just a lot of things that I think are unique to that profile when a girl fits within that profile that inevitably changes the dynamics. So for us, you know, we used to laugh about we did more discipline with my daughter around Not being a second mother, you know, firstborn girls love to jump in and be a second mother often, and so it's like, sweetie, it's not your job. We've got this; we're on top of this. But she would insert herself, and I think that instinct is strong, just out of the biology of how girls are hardwired. That you know, the fascinating science around their capacity in a lot of moments just to be a bit more nurturing. So that instinct is strong. She couldn't help herself, but wanting to insert herself in those ways, Mm and so. When you throw in some of that into the mix, it inevitably changes the dynamic. The other part that I talk about right out of the gate in Wild Things is, you know, I talk about how boys have what I call three strikes against them from the get go. So from the time the race begins to use your your um, love of running and the gun is fired and the race begins, like he, she simply has some advanced skills and abilities that he doesn't, which changes things greatly whether that's in the home environment the learning environment on the athletic field wherever it may be and strike one is that the female brain secretes more serotonin which is directly related to impulse control so she has advanced abilities to regulate her body to regulate her emotions like there is there are skills in place that allow her to do things in multiple environments that he simply doesn't have in the same way Strike two is that a little girl's frontal lobes grow at an earlier stage and are generally more active. And our frontal lobes do a lot of things, but they inform our you know, executive decisions. So put simply, it's why girls tend to do a lot more thinking first and then acting second. And boys do the, the opposite, <laughs> acting first and then thinking. Sometimes on the way to the ER, like, should I have jumped off that? Should I have ridden my bike off that ramp? He wasn't necessarily thinking it all through on the front side in the way she more oftentimes is. And then, strike three would be that the brain stem in the male houses more spinal fluid, which is yet one more part of his hardwiring, his makeup that makes him active, physical, moving, action oriented. And so. If you just work with those three ingredients, and quite honestly, I could go on. I could give you a dozen ingredients in terms of informing those differences, but just those three, think about how different that's going to make the mix. That if you throw in a being, if you threw a girl into the mix who has those abilities and skills in place differently, it's inevitably going to change the game. You know, I, I laugh so often, but... <laughs> you know, that dynamic of parents who'll talk about a girl who just say, we can't do that. You can't do that. You know, she just is policing the circumstances uh-huh. in a way that it might not, but it might halt whatever's about to happen next. And so that's but one of dozens of examples I could give to to your question of just, yes, I think it absolutely changes the dynamic. No question about it.
0: Well, you know, it makes me feel better hearing that because and, I, and I'm not proud of this, but oftentimes I do catch myself saying, what were you thinking? Why did you do that? Like, what's going on? You know, and you just jump to that. And it's based on what you're saying. It's like, well, they weren't thinking. They were doing.
1: You're 100% correct. In fact, I think that's one of the most common questions we ask boys.
0: What were you thinking? A
1: lot of Absolutely. In the classroom, on a field, at home, like, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? And based on what you just heard me say, a lot of the time he wasn't. Like, he was getting from point A to point B, this action oriented moving creature. And he wasn't doing a lot of thinking. I think it's why boys so often have that kind of deer in the headlights glazed over look when we ask him that yeah. question. Like, I don't know what I was thinking. Actually, I hadn't, I hadn't started thinking until you asked the question. And so <laughs> I challenge parents to throw that out. I don't think that's so useful a question. I think it drives frustration for us as parents because it looks like He's not owning his part. It looks like he's not being thoughtful throughout his existence. You know, so many things. And I think it's setting him up in a way that's just not um, setting him up for success. I think there's a lot that we say and do within the context of parenting, which is why I'm just so grateful you give me this chance to talk in this way about boys that I think would inform our parenting on a daily basis in a very different way. The way we engage him, the way we discipline him, the way we encourage him that we could do those things in what I call a more boy-friendly way, more in tandem with the unique way that he's hardwired.
0: Okay, let me ask you a question then. I'm going to give a real-life example here, and I just thought of it on the spot, the what-were-you-thinking situation. Um, Because obviously there need to be consequences to actions and and whatnot. Um, We were My family's moving from Indiana to North Carolina in a week and a half, and... It's very exciting, but we had a going away party last weekend. And so we had leftover cans of beer and Coke and LaCroix, all the things in our coolers. And yesterday morning, I go outside and two of my oldest boys, they're, they're six and eight, and the neighbor boy are just thru- chucking full, full beer cans on the ground and just spraying them everywhere. It, sa- it smells like I had a frat party in my driveway. <laughs> And I, I think I said, "What were you thinking?" Because I'm like, "Ah, oh, what were you thinking?" Even though I am consciously and actively trying to remove that, um, I'm curious. What would you do in that situation?
1: Absolutely. Well, first off, <laughs> let me—I'm laughing with you. I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you. And I, I couldn't wait for you to get to the end of that story to find <laughs> out what happened. But I had a strong suspicion it might be something along those lines. I guess we could argue it was better they were throwing the beer bottles than drinking. Them. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there's a win, but I would say, you know, if we were to step back first before we talk about how to respond and think, what were they likely wanting to accomplish? Yeah. You know, if we sit with that, I, I have some guesses. My strongest guess would be the fascination uh-huh. around wow. noise and explosions. I talk about how boys love all things with fire, fire, fireworks, firearms, like everything that is... Explosive and hot and big and fascinating just intrigues them. And so I think that story is within keeping like the fascination they must have experienced when it crashed and exploded and went everywhere. Like if you think about it in that way, you think, of course, of course. And what's so important in my mind in thinking about it that way, too, is that our response is different in my mind if I'm thinking about what they were hoping to accomplish that was more about intrigue, interest, or fascination than about, I want to make your life more complicated as a mom. You know, like, I want to create a big old mess that you have to clean up later. I want the driveway in the house to smell like a frat house. Like, our strong suspicion is that's not at all what's going on. Right. That's not at all what was a, in the mix within that. So, again, we can always get there in the moment. And yet, if we can, if we're allowing development to serve as a backdrop, that's why I believe so strongly in talking about development, reading about development, leaning into development. If we're thinking about all these things we know to be true about boys, and that was the mission, mm-hmm. then I think it informs our response going forward. Now, that's not to say they didn't earn a consequence, but it is to say If I believe that was the purpose, then I would say a better response would be, you're going to be in charge of cleaning this up because you were incredibly fascinated by what was going down versus I'm going to punish you Mm -hmm. because you were trying to make my life harder while we're in the middle of a move. You see that difference? Yes. And so that also, you know, in terms of the response would, I talk so much with parents about getting in front of the response, like, okay, if we know they have that fascination, How could, if they're bored, restless, it's the summer and they've got more time on their hands, could I create opportunity around that? You know, I I laugh with how many parents tell stories about boys building forts. All day. boys building Every day. (laughs) And they make a massive mess in the process. Yes. And let's just be clear. None of us want to clean up all that mess. But the process of building and creating and destroying and, you know, all the parts and pieces that accompany that feed a part of who they are in a really remarkable way and i think to the degree that we're getting in front of it by creating those kind of opportunities and let's have them do as much of the cleanup as possible obviously but to the degree i can get in front of it in that way i'm probably going to offset at least a certain amount of the driveway scenario we just described at this moment so i think i just would challenge parents think as much about how we're going to respond to what happened as we could be responsive on the front side of what could happen differently maybe is the best way to put that
0: yeah you know the fort situation and I always tell them I'm like you guys are going to be responsible for cleaning this up if you get it out but everybody knows every parent listening knows they're not going to clean it up exactly how you want it and that's just how, how it is and I try so hard because they do the forts in their room in the living room on the porch I mean just everywhere and I try to remind myself like this is so much better than them sitting on video games or whatever else it is, or throwing beer cans, <laughs> you know, and just embracing it's going to be a little messy and it's not going to be put away perfectly. Now, I, I do have a question about, um, I want to jump right into the wild play because hey. I think, you know, my husband and I were talking about this last night as I was, I was talking to him about interviewing you. And we very much came to the conclusion that The rough, constant physical play is what sends me over the edge. Um, I grew up with two sisters. Like, I've always been surrounded by lots of girls. And, you know, here I am with four boys. And um, for him, my husband, it's when they whine that sends him over the edge. So the whining, he just loses it. And the physical play, I just lose it, which very much tells me a lot about me being a female and my husband being a male and how we react to... um, what the boys are doing. I don't know if you have a comment on that.
1: Mm-hmm. I would say, first off, I love your awareness there and, and what, it, what it triggers or signals inside of you. And, and I would say, secondly, it shouldn't feel instinctive to you. And, and for any mom listening, like, don't worry. You don't, you don't ever have to love that or understand that. I do think it's important to lean into what that's about. Again, what's it accomplishing for him? And, and think back to those three strikes I named a few minutes ago. Like you heard me say in summary, he is hardwired for activity and movement. I would add to that list that I think boys have a lot of physicality to their emotions. So it's why, for example, toddler-age boys are more prone to biting, hitting, kicking, screaming. It's why adolescent boys are more prone to punching holes in drywalls i'd say girls won't do those things but it is to say it's more instinctive it's part of his body's kind of crying out like i have all this energy this intensity inside of me and it needs to be released that's true when he is emotionally charged it's also true to some degree in terms of just his general development start to finish so if we're again thinking on development leaning into development we're going to be knowing He's gotta have more physical releases. he's gonna have more movement based experiences. It's not to again say girls don't need that. Don't hear me say that at all. It's just to say he has advanced needs in that category typically, and even there, I want to say to any parent listening, you know there certainly is a spectrum of needs, I think, with everything with temperament, you know, with this need for physical release on a one to ten scale. there's some boys who you know, hover primarily in the one to five space that there's some boys who are slamming up against him from the time they get out of bed every morning. You know, it's just like they have an even greater need. Know your son, know your son, and you'll know and have a sense of where he is, even as you talked earlier about your third. Like, you know, that kid in particular has potentially potentially an even greater appetite or need in that space. So how can we turn up the volume on those opportunities so that we don't end up having to be reactive on the backside because he didn't have enough of that? So. I would say, too, that I talk about early on creating space for that as young as toddler-age boys. So I have so many parents who will say he loves to wrestle. I have so many moms who will say, I don't need to. I didn't grow. (laughs) siblings who needed to. I had all sisters. And so even the idea of that doesn't make sense. The benefit and the beauty of that is to the degree that we provide a set-aside time for that, it's less likely to spill out all throughout the day. To the degree that we don't, there's a greater chance he's going to be running in the house, yelling at the library in quiet spaces, you know, being inappropriate in a restaurant because he didn't have enough room. I I challenge parents often if you've ever trained a puppy, think about what we all know it's like when, if you've ever kennel trained a dog and you come home and that animal has been inside that cage for an extended period of time. You know, when you open the cage, he comes out wild. You know, no puppy comes out and just saunters the other side of the room and then lays down and takes a nap. You know, like they've got penned up energy. I think boys live like that. And to the degree that they've been sitting for longer periods of time, the need's going to be even greater. So I'll challenge parents with toddler age boys, set aside wrestling time throughout the day, no different than you would set aside bath time. And reading stories, time. And you know, again, it's an identified block of time. I think two things happen in that time. One is we're creating that release. Secondly, it's a great, what I call regulation building experience. So if we say to boys, okay, I'm going to set the timer on my phone, and wrestling time is about to start, when the timer goes off, we're going to clean up where we set out, you know, the pillows. (laughs) I know parents who order literally wrestling pads to put in their room. They move the coffee table out of the middle of the room and pad the couch in any spaces he might bump his head with pillows. And then they go at it in some wrestling time. And when the timer goes off and he has to transition from wrestling time, let's say, to bath time next, that's a great regulation building tool. And it's the skill set he'll need once he jumps into the school environment when the teacher says, okay, Snack time's over and it's time to use the restroom and then transition to circle time and then from circle time to rest time. And then when he's in the classroom in elementary school, when we transition from math to reading and reading to social studies, like those transitions are all regulation experiences. And to the degree that we're providing these kind of opportunities, we're strengthening that regulation muscle in addition to, as I said, giving him a great outlet for his hardwiring. So think on as many opportunities as possible for that.
0: Yeah. Somebody has suggested the wrestling mat and telling me like, you need to have a designated spot for it. And I, I have no idea why I have never done that. I think one of the hardest things too, and I know I've heard other moms say this and dads is when it goes too far. It's like, I'm totally fine with you guys wrestling and getting wild. I get it. But I feel like people get hurt all the time. And I'm always like, I think one of the most common things I say is somebody's going to get hurt. Yes. How do we, how do we monitor that? And I, I am not a helicopter parent. If my kids are wrestling and they're doing whatever, I kind of just walk away and do my own thing. Cause I will go crazy if I, you know, try to get in the mix. But how do we ensure that it's not always going too far?
1: Yeah. I think even that is, in my mind, a regulation building experience. So if I'm wrestling with my brother and he says, no, stop it, quit, I'm hurt, any of those things, to respond to that need is a regulation building experience, like to stop the wrestling at that point. Now, you and I both know a lot of boys won't. They'll keep going at that point. And so we do at times have to step in and quote unquote referee that match in the way an actual referee would if he were you know, overseeing that actual sport with high school age kids. So certainly hear me saying I'm not in any way stating that I think kids are capable of doing that with consistency. I do think it's a practice context for that to happen. And so I think some coaching on the front side of if you hear the word no, if someone says they're hurt. If anyone's bleeding, you know, we could set some ground rules around that experience that create the regulation building and using that analogy to even treat it the way a wrestling match would be treated. Like, think on that. The referee says, pause. If the buzzer rings and you don't stop the wrestling match at that point, like you get a penalty. And so. It may be that kid's going to have to sit out of wrestling and the other siblings get to only do it at that point for five minutes, for 10 minutes. It may be that we turn that into a consequence experience and you're going to lose some screen time at some point later. But even if it happens in that way, don't lose the opportunity that there's still some good learning that can happen. And to that statement, you know, boys are generally I talk a lot about this in Wild Things. Boys are primarily experiential learners. And so we could give them all this good instruction on the front side. They could shake their heads in agreement like they've got it. They could execute the experience and show evidence that they didn't. And the learning actually happened in the consequence on the backside. So don't dismiss that. It's not that you didn't explain it well. It's not that the rules weren't clear. It's that sometimes boys make the best connections through going through the motions. In fact, I think it's the wisdom of, if you think about the classic story, of The Prodigal Son, I always wish we had greater insight into what the mother was thinking in that story. Like, don't you know the mother said at some point in the story to her dad, like, are you kidding me? You're going to give that kid that much cash. He's going to blow every bit of that. He's going to end up right on this doorstep, filthy and broke at some point. But even if she got in front of that, if either parent hadn't said like, hey, don't don't blow the money. If You spend it all. Here's how it's going to go down. We all know what we're told in that scripture, the wisdom of that scripture is he came to his senses he came to his senses when he was dining with pigs and i wish desperately that that weren't the case for boys i wish they didn't always only connect the dots sometimes when they hit up against a roadblock like that but in my experience with a lot of boys of a lot of ages sometimes the learning doesn't happen the connection doesn't take place until something along those lines has happened. So to our example there, and I'm certainly not endorsing any boy getting hurt, but I am simply saying, you know, the learning may not happen until the backside of that, of having to apologize to your brother cause he was hurt temporarily. And then you had to sit out or you lost some screen time and you didn't get to do anything but become a spectator at that moment that the learning then locked in. And the next time around he can execute that differently.
0: Hey everybody, as we head into cold and flu season, I don't know about you, but I don't want to deal with it. You can take some preventative measures by using elderberry syrup. And I have an awesome human who is part of this podcast network who has her own elderberry syrup. Her and her husband own a small farm and they source the highest quality ingredients for their products. What is elderberry? It is an immune modulating herb, which brings balance to the immune system, reducing stress, decreasing inflammation, and helping to prepare the body for cold and flu season naturally. If you do get sick, it's proven to help reduce severity and duration. It's also safe for kids to take. If your kids are under one, you can use their DIY kit that they have available on their website and use maple syrup or your favorite sweetener instead. The elderberry syrup that they have also has the addition of healing herbs like cinnamon, gingers, rose hips, which is huge for vitamin C, and clove elderberry syrup helps you stay on top of your health all year long listen my kids are coming home with colds left and right and i've been downing this i was downing the elderberry before the new york city marathon and i'm downing it after because they're coughing all over me and knock on wood i'm not sick yet but we'll see we'll see even if i do get sick though i am hoping that the elderberry syrup decreases the severity of it like it's proven to do um This is a small family-owned business as well. I always feel like things made in small batches, you can bet that it's probably better quality than what you're buying massively produced at the grocery store. They put a lot of love into their products. You can go to greengrowers.farm and when you use the code SANDYBOY at your checkout, that'll get you free shipping. So that's greengrowers.farm and use the code SANDYBOY at checkout. And I, I got to tell you, it's actually really tasty. Like you could add it into your oatmeal or I just take a tablespoon and, and down it. But it's it's actually a really delicious tasting syrup. Um, again, that's greengrowers.farm. Use the code Sandyboy and get yourself some free shipping. All right, friends, back to the show. I'm curious, do we communicate that and when to our boys like what you just explained to me that that is part of their process in biology like beforehand and then of course they learn after but like do we ever explain that to them and at what age?
1: Absolutely I think no differently than back to our wrestling analogy you know where the referee is probably going to go over some of the things right before the match starts so the thing that I would say to that question is anytime we're giving boys instruction instruction of any kind I want to challenge parents listening to be clear and concise. Where I think we lose boys is we wrap way too much explanation, way too much instruction, way too much verbiage and language around things, and they get lost in that. So to build on my statement a few minutes ago that they're experiential learners, the the five primary ways that boys learn, Early on, they're tactile and kinesthetic learners. They learn by exploring and touching and feeling. It's why toddler-age boys love to build and stack blocks and play with Legos. They're tactile and kinesthetic. As they grow forward, they will primarily be visual, spatial, and experiential learners. Now, think on that list. Tactile, kinesthetic, visual, spatial, experiential. Nowhere in that top five did I say he's primarily an auditory learner, and I would say I think the biggest mistake we make as parents is talking at boys and talking with boys too much and very little of that landing on boys. And so I think it's potentially the greatest modification we could make in our journey of parenting. And I think often I sit with parents daily. I sit with parents who are like, I told him I explained this to him, you know, and it's like and it may have been too much explanation or that information may have just circled around the room and not really landed on him. But when he connected the dots was In the experience. And again, our desire, and I think mom's particularly saying I want you to have all information on the front side so I can offset the back side. I don't want you to need to dine with pigs. But what (laughs) I would say according to the story is many boys have to dine with pigs before they make the right connections at that point. I wish it were different. I desperately wish that were different. Girls I think are more capable of incorporating that information. They are auditory learners. And so Their capacity to absorb and integrate that information is very different, very different. So it's not that he can't take in any of that. Don't hear me saying that at all. It's simply to say he takes in less and to the degree that we can get really clear and concise with him, the better the opportunity that he is going to absorb the information well.
0: Gosh, that's so powerful because I'm sitting here picturing all the times that I just want to talk and ask questions and, and all the things. And, you know, as my oldest son, he's, well, he actually just turned nine as he gets older. Like it is really cool, you know, like when they can have real conversations with you, but I know I want to talk way more than he wants to talk. And honestly, that's kind of hard for me as a mom with only boys, like knowing that That's kind of just my reality. I I know that some boys are more talkers. But I was just talking to my sister-in-law about this because um, my husband also has three sisters. So we both are like full of of girls before this. And just the relationship you have with your mom as an adult male versus an adult female. And I'm sitting here thinking, oh my gosh, you know, they're all going to grow up and, and have their own lives. And I picture how much more i you know communicate with my mom versus how much before my mother-in-law passed away how much my husband communicated with his mom and i'm like don't leave me you know it's tough
1: absolutely you know what i love though about what you're saying i love that you are framing the long game of parenting a boy and i i would challenge any parent listening to hold on to what you just said and to talk about the way that relationship looks on you as an adult and for your husband as an adult with his mom and and their relationship differently than it did at different moments. And I think a lot of moms can get really discouraged and hopeless at times when the relationship doesn't look maybe in the very category you name, like we're just not talking as much. I can't reach him. We can't have conversation and connection the ways I imagined or would hope. And chances are you can at some point. I talked about my boys, you know, heading to college, like they'll sit on the couch and have Long conversations with my wife. Like I love to watch that happen. Like their connection, their relationship looks way different than it did at 15, or at 12, or at 10. And that's not to say he can't have rich conversations. He absolutely can, but he certainly can't have it in the way he's going to be able to have it at 17, 18, 19, 20, and into his adult life. So keep framing the long game when you're seeing evidence of things. I think that's another mistake we can make as parents. I sat with a mom of a 14 year old boy not long ago. And and she was, you know, 14 is a super complicated stretch of development. And she was seeing some really hard things with him. And she said, he is never going to. And I was like, "Okay, time out right there. I'm not even going to let you finish that sentence. Whatever you're about to say, you can't say because he's only 14. He's a developing person. So whatever you're seeing right now doesn't necessarily inform and determine who he's going to be at 18, at 24, at 34, at 44. And, you know, I laughed with her and said, I don't want to go down in history as who I was as a 14-year-old boy. No one would have ever thought I would grow up to be a therapist. (laughs) And so (laughs) that's simply a moment in development. And let's lengthen the runway. Let's parent with the long game in mind so that we're seeing evidence of who he's becoming, not just who he is right now in this moment. So I love the way you asked that. I'd also say, let's laugh together about this. I sat with another parent. I do a lot of what in my work, what we call parent consultations. I do them with parents all over the country where we just come together for an hour's time and just kind of talk about some things they're observing and how could we create a to-do list based on the needs at that particular moment in development. And I was talking with a mom of a five year old boy and she said, David, you know, I was in the middle of a conversation. I had so much I wanted to say. I could tell I was kind of losing him, but I didn't pay attention to those signals. And I just kept plowing forward with conversation mm-hmm. and her, her son looked at her and he said, hey, mom, my mouth is starting to hurt. You stop <laughs> talking.' So honest. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought the way he was saying it, like, you know, if we laugh with that analogy, like his mouth is going to hurt earlier than yours is as a mom, you know, like his capacity to keep the conversation going is limited. And so again, it's right back to where we started, like just leaning into development and knowing those things allowed this mom not to take it personally. You know, she could even say like, I didn't pay attention to the signals. I could tell he was getting fidgety. I could tell we needed to wrap things up. I could tell I wasn't being concise at that point. And so, and yet I plowed on through and He ended up having to give her a very clear signal that he couldn't keep talking at that point, but was able to say it in a real tender and hilarious way.
0: It's so funny because you feel like as a parent, I feel like when I am asking questions and having these conversations, I'm like, I'm doing a good job. I'm paying attention. I'm like not distracted by work or all the other things. But I know in my heart for my sons, especially my bigger ones at this point, like that's playing soccer with him and things like that. Like he's going to value that time more than me yapping at him, even though I want to yap
1: <laughs> I think some of our best conversations with boys happen what I call side to side rather than eye to eye I think eye to eye can feel threatening any parent listening I would challenge you there try to avoid we do a lot of that I think at times like I need you to sit down and mm-hmm. look at if we look at what happens with boys neurologically and emotionally in those moments you know He registers the experience of shame a little more easily. So if he's in trouble, if he's feeling overwhelmed or fearful, any number of things like what's going on in that moment, actually eye to eye is the worst posture he could be in. And so not only in emotionally charged moments, but in any moments. I talk with parents about if you want to have good, rich conversations with your son, take the family dog on a walk. Go outside while he's shooting hoops and retrieve the ball and give it back to him. Get on the trampoline with him. Like the wisdom of what you just said, like anytime he's in motion and I can come alongside him and be a part of that experience. I had a mom say to me years ago, she goes, it's almost like I need to trick him into talking. And I said, exactly. Yes. Yes. I if he thinks you want to talk, he's probably going to shut down a little bit earlier. If he doesn't know he's talking, it's going to be a win. So just subtly go outside while shooting hoops and just retrieve the ball and don't talk for the first few minutes and then ask him a question about his day.
0: That's so good.
1: Yeah. Use those opportunities as again, a way to honor his hardwiring and a way to have better conversations throughout development.
0: You know, you mentioned 14 being a really hard stage. I know in your stages of development, you call it the wonder stage um, for boys and I find that so interesting because I'm sure you've heard this a million times. As a mom with little boys, I cannot count how many times people have said, Oh, well, it's hard now, but like, you know, you don't, you're not going to have to deal with the teenage girl hormone stuff. So I'm curious, like, your thoughts on that because it, it's not like it's just going to be easy because I don't have a teenage girl. And also, I don't mean it's not hard when you have little girls, like, you know, it's hard for different reasons on both ends. But can you talk about that wonder stage a little bit?
1: You're 100% correct. And, And generally speaking, and it's interesting when I teach parenting classes with my dear friend and colleague, Sissy Goff, who works a lot with girls, we teach a class where we kind of track through boy and girl development. And we'll sometimes ask to be in the class like, when do you think is the hardest season in terms of parenting girls? When's the hardest season in terms of parenting boys? And generally speaking, more parents of young boys will define that as a harder stretch. More parents of adolescent girls will define that as a harder stretch. And I think, you know, the game on the front side of parenting boys is more physical. The game on the back side of development is more emotional. And generally speaking, again, exceptions to this rule in both genders, but generally speaking, I think girls can have some more intense ups and downs. And I think, you know the relational journey, the relational maze for an av- for an adolescent girl. I think is one of the most complicated mazes out there to navigate. And there are a lot of adolescent girls who can be incredibly punishing in relationships, manipulative, passive aggressive, resentful, in ways that boys certainly could be, but aren't as often. You know that classic scenario we talk a lot about, where boys like I'm really mad at you, and then the next day they're best friends again. Mm-hmm. Like they're to rebound and bounce back in relationship makes navigating that stretch of adolescence less complicated. You know, I, I work with plenty of boys who have complicated things happen with their friend groups, but nothing, nothing in comparison to what a lot of my female colleagues who work with adolescent girls would report. Like, it's just a complicated maze. So I do think we can get a bit of reprieve in that stretch in terms of what our adolescent boys are going to navigate emotionally and socially. Now, that's not to take away from it's a complicated stretch of development, period, end of sentence. In fact, every developmental theorist out there would say it's the worst episode of a boy or a girl's life, that mid-adolescent stretch. And so for any parent listening, I would say roughly 13 to 15, a little beyond 15, 15 and a half. I think that's just a complicated stretch of development. You know, his he, he is experiencing a biological tsunami and a lot of relational intensity and emotional intensity, relational complexity, you know, that just make navigating that stretch of development, it's just trickier. It's a complicated, more complicated stretch. And And I think in turn can make it one of the harder stretches of parenting because he's experiencing so much change and transition. But again, to the degree that we know what's coming, that we're leaning into what all's at play developmentally, I think our response can look really different.
0: Um, One thing I do want to hit on, and as we're talking about boys getting older, it made me jump back to this a little bit. Um, When we were talking about the physical play, uh, we have a couple of neighbor girls who have brothers that play with the boys. And. I catch myself often saying to my boys without even like thinking, you can't play with the girls that way. Um, like my five-year-old will like pummel a girl who might be a little bit bigger than him. She's seven. But she doesn't want to play like that though, like the boys do. So I'm curious, starting at a younger age, how do you recommend talking to our boys about the difference between with how we treat our friends that are boys and our friends that are girls.
1: Yes. I think it does require more social coaching. I do. In fact, I'd even argue that I think boys require more social coaching throughout development because their instincts, generally speaking, aren't as strong in that space. And so they will require to your question more differentiation. And I I tell a story in the first chapter of wild things in the explore stage about a you know my wife going to pick up my boys at preschool one day and they ran when she showed up at the door and headbutted her you know and she was humiliated that that happened in front of the teacher and later that night I had to do some more coaching like guys you cannot wrestle down your mom or your sister we can wrestle but that's not the way your mom feels love that's I know your sister feels love neither of them want to be tackled on any given day. but you can do that with me. And so to your point, you're right on target. That will, that kind of differentiation, that kind of social coaching is needed. And, you know, I think about if we jump into that complicated stretch of development, boys are going to need more social coaching. Think about the classic example of how many boys will, you know, boys are generally speaking in that stretch kind of fascinated by bodily noises. And so they will Mm. burp fart and you know all that stuff that we know we're going to experience and do it in front of girls and yeah. we've got to again dude, like no girl no nope. thanks hey, it's hilarious you know in fact she thinks it's awful the sound and the smell so it's like we're simply gonna have to do more coaching in a lot of different moments where those instincts won't be as strong and he innocently could genuinely believe like I'm just being hilarious I'm gonna crack her up with this and it's like Mm-mm. No, you're not going to not crack her up. You're going to offend her. Yep. And so watch for where that's more needed all throughout development. And again, it's just a part of his hardwiring. His instincts just aren't as strong in that space. She is, generally speaking, going to be more socially attuned, more aware of what's going on in a space. Now, there certainly are some boys who have some advanced skills in that space. But generally speaking, those that'll be another difference we'll notice.
0: Never in my life did I know I would be surrounded by so much laughing over farting and, oh my gosh, it, mom, I got something for you. It's like, where did this come from?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and can I can I add to that? It's, it's why I even talk about in the Explorer stage, you know, where we see the first evidence of that with toddler age boys is they tend to stand too close. Mm-hmm talk too loud yeah. or talk too yeah. long about a subject that interests them. And so we'll have to think about how often we're saying things like inside voice or, you know, you're standing too close. We're in the library now, wherever it may be, like volume, space, tone, proximity, all those things. He can just get more lost in because his instincts aren't as strong. And to the degree that we know this about his development, we're not as frustrated. We did do work to get in front of that as opposed to being more reactive on the backside.
0: Oh, yeah. One of the things I've heard you talk about is we want to talk louder to get our point across, and it just doesn't work.
1: No, that trap of talking more or talking louder, neither of those are ever a win for a boy, but a trap that I think we can step into daily. If we're not going back to that, what are the five ways he learns? He's not an auditory learner. So talking more and talking louder is never a win. How could I create an experiential learning opportunity for him so that he can better make those connections?
0: Well, we're going to wrap up here with end of the podcast questions. Last little question here before that. Is there anything, any advice you can give, any last advice for talking with boys about their emotions? I know that's kind of a big question and we're running short on time, Um, but I do find that I hear a lot of parents talk about that. Like, you know, your son is feeling sad or whatever, but he's not talking about it.
1: Yes. I would say two things. One, I would say fall back on that wisdom of talking around a task. If you know something's going on, it's hard to get access. Do less eye to eye, that direct head on and look for where we could do more of that side by side. Secondly, I would encourage any, any parent who might be interested in, in doing a deeper dive into that space. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book with two of my colleagues called Are My Kids on Track? and it's four emotional, four social, and four spiritual milestones we wanna see kids progressing toward throughout development. And we've got a whole podcast season devoted to those milestones. So if you wanted to do a deep dive into the four emotional milestones, I would say that could be a great place to start. In the book, we go even deeper than obviously what we could do in a podcast episode, but I talk about some unique stumbling blocks for boys and then some building blocks. To helping boys develop, as we talked about a little bit earlier, just some of those emotional muscles like regulation and resourcefulness and empathy and perspective and vocabulary. So I'd encourage any parent listening, if you'd love to do a deeper dive, that could be a good place to start. And you could access all of that easily on our website, RaisingBoysAndGirls.com. There's a listen tab. It'll take you straight to it.
0: I love it. Okay. So what's one thing professionally or personally that you would like to do that you have not done yet?
1: is a great question. I would say, uh, personally, I do a lot of travel with my work with speaking, Mm -hmm. but I would love to do a little more travel for pleasure. So I'm, 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 I'm leaning into what that could look like, uh, going forward, do a little more travel. And, and particularly, as I mentioned that my wife and I are about to be empty nesters. So we're kind of heading into a whole new season and I want to think creatively about how to do that.
0: What's a place you visited with your kids that you would highly recommend?
1: I would say I am really simple in this way, in that some of my best trips with my kids' favorite memories have been at a lake house, just the five of us. So it's not even about some place that's really glamorous or hard to get to or incredibly expensive, but just like some of – we were sitting around the table actually – this summer, when everybody was home and talking about some of the favorite travel we've done, and every one of them named a lake house trip we taken. So I challenge any parent listening: think on that. Sometimes we're working so hard to try to pull off a Disney experience, and that's awesome, and I'm so grateful we had that opportunity with our kids. But none of them name that as a favorite trip at this point. You know, kids might do that obviously in more of the eight to twelve space. That'd be a favorite memory or an amusement park or a water park, those sorts of things. But in the end, the trips that stayed with all three of them were really simple, packing a cooler full of food, mainly nothing but bathing suits and flip flops, and then landing at a lake house we rented somewhere and just played cards and board games and watched shows and read books. And There's just so many ingredients of simplicity that were part of that time that really stayed with all three of my kids.
0: And put your phones down, I'm sure
1: absolutely get off the technology yes
0: all right two more two quick ones best most recent book you've read
1: i would say a particular concern i've had for a long period of time with boys in the wanderer space that you and i were talking around a few minutes ago is their vulnerability to substance abuse the stats are Crazy high for adolescent boys, for adolescents in general, but boys in particular. And then if you jump forward into adulthood, the stats around addiction for adult men are through the roof. And so I don't think we can do enough to try to get in front of that. I read a great book recently called The Addiction Inoculation by I believe the author's name is Jessica Leahy, is a psychologist, and I thought it was outstanding. And I would recommend it to any parent uh, of an adolescent in general. I don't think we could do enough reading in that space, particularly in the moment I'm in where we're about to launch kids college. You know, the bottom line is we are living in a moment where binge drinking on college camps is considered the norm and parents are kind of operating with a mindset like it's going to happen, like it's just going to be a part of their experience. And there is an overwhelming amount of data, overwhelming amount of data. And she does an amazing job of kind of compartmentalizing or kind of, uh, you bringing all that data into really manageable language to understand what happens when kids start wading into the waters of substance use and then substance abuse in the middle school space, in the high school space, in the college space, you know, bottom line, cliff notes version is we can set the stage for addiction like that with the developing brain. Like if, if we really lean into what the research is telling us, we ought to be scared to death and doing everything we can to get in front of that, everything we can and abandoning that mindset of, oh, kids are just going to drink. It's mm-hmm. just going to happen. That's, go- that's how it's going to wet- go on college camps. It's like, no, we got to get in front of this thing or, you know, the prediction, according to a lot of the research is if we don't get in front of this, you know, at some point down the road, there won't be enough beds available in recovery placements that, you know, there won't be enough opportunities available for ki- for young adults and adults to get uh, the treatment they need at some point along the way because we will have so addicted a culture at that point. So we've really got to do wow. everything we can to get in front of that. Really into the work that I do, it can wreck a family. I mean, I work with so many parents who are amazing people in recovery, who would say it just demolished relationships I was in. you know, Destroyed marriages, damaged my relationships with my children at this point. like. We just want to be, in summary, doing everything we can to get in front of that, being really thoughtful and intentional with our parenting journey, knowing boys in particular are greatly vulnerable to that.
0: Well, I'm going to do an episode on that. You've inspired me to do that. I'm very inspired to research that now.
1: Try and reach out to her. I, I thought will. The, I, the book was so well written, outstanding content, and, and she did an amazing job of, of breaking it down into some really practical things that parents could be doing to try to get in front of that animal.
0: Oh, for sure. I'll definitely read the book and reach out. Um, okay, here's our last question, David. What is your last message you want to leave with our audience today?
1: I think it's probably the message that we started with, that um, if we could be as intentional and as strategic as possible in studying our not just our sons, but our kids' development, like the unique things that are going on at different moments of different stages of their lives, I think it changes the game. Every day I sit with parents who are asking some version, and particularly with boys, you can imagine like, is this normal? Like, should this be happening? (laughs) And to the degree that we're studying development and leaning in, it normalizes a lot of what we see and experience with our kids. I think it informs our responses. I think it impacts, again, the way we discipline them, the way we affirm them the way we engage and connect with them. So I I just would challenge parents to do that. A great place that you could start, that podcast I mentioned, Raising Boys and Girls, we have an entire season devoted to ages and stages. So you could listen to that season and just travel through what's going on in boy and girl development and all these different moments in, in ways that I think could be a jumping off point.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. I'm so grateful to have gotten to spend time with you today. I appreciate you giving me a chance to talk about these things.
0: All right, everybody. Thanks for being here today. Thank you, David, for coming on the podcast. You all can learn more. Go to RaisingBoysAndGirls.com. That's their website. You can also find them on Instagram, David and his team at Daystar Counseling. They are Raising Boys and Girls over there. Lots of great information over there. I definitely want to have his co-workers on the show as well. You can find this podcast on Instagram. We'd love to have you join the community over there. It's Why Is Everyone Yelling?, I'm your host, Lindsay, and you can find me personally on Instagram. I'm Lindsay lindsayhine626 over there. We also have a Facebook group called Why Is Everyone Yelling? Don't forget to check out our sponsors for the podcast today. Prevenex.com. Use the code lindsay15 at checkout. That'll get you 15% off your order. And you can check out Nutrafol, our other sponsor of the podcast, Grow Thicker, Healthier Hair. Go to nutriful.com and use the code yelling at checkout. All right, friends, thanks for being here. Hope you love the show. And we will see you next Tuesday on Why Is Everyone Yelling?